Welcome to Tez Podagogy, the podcast for all those in education who understood the pun in the title and, okay, those that do not too. We're here to help you reflect, challenge you and plant some ideas in your head. Today my guest is Dylan William, Professor of Educational Assessment at the UCL Institute of Education, all-round education legend and author of books including Inside the Black Box. Hello Dylan, thank you for joining us on the podcast. So today we're going to talk about um, research and research in education particularly. Um, how much of a change do you think it's been in the last sort of maybe four or five years of how much research has come into uh, the classroom practice of, of sort of everyday teachers? I think there's been a dramatic change and I think it's a very welcome change. I think too many teachers in the past found that research wasn't helpful to them partly because researchers weren't sharing their research in a way that was accessible to teachers, but also because, to be honest, a lot of the research that was being done was not particularly relevant to teachers. So I think two things have changed. One is that researchers are now thinking much more about how to communicate their findings to practitioners. And they're finding that pretty difficult because it's actually quite complex. Mm -hmm. But I think the other thing is we're beginning to get insights into learning that have real profound implications for really practical things like how you design a curriculum, how you present things to students on a blackboard, you know, all those things. We now have some research informing those things that we really didn't have 30, 40 years ago when we had a psychology of education course in every PGCE. Do you think as well that, um, I mean, some of the research is directly uh, related to education and then some of the research I've seen used in, in schools has is, is come from different sort of research into different areas, but it's been applied to education. Uh, for example, Ericsson's uh, deliberate practice wasn't necessarily a, a school-based education theory, but it's been been applied there or, or attempts to be applied there. Is there a lot of that going on? And is that is that useful? Is, is that healthy? I think education has always borrowed insights from other fields, partly because I don't think it makes sense to think of education as a discipline. It's mm. a field of study and it draws on different disciplines for insights. So I think education works well when it draws on sociology and psychology and um, other fields that you know, aren't directly c connected. I think the danger is that often goes too far. We're always looking for the next big thing in education. Mm. So we latch onto ideas and we try to apply them and often it doesn't work in education because the timescales are wrong. So let me give you an example. When British Cycling did very well in past Olympic Games, Ian Brailsford, talk, who was talking about marginal improvements, was very influential in a lot of schools thinking, we're going to do marginal improvements, we're going to just work out what works and make small improvements. Mm. Well, the difficulty is, that's really easy to do with cyclists in a wind tunnel. Does, does shaving their legs <laughs> improve the, um, the streamlining? But the difficulty of education, as Paul Kirshner and his colleagues have pointed out, Learning is a change in long-term memory. Mm. If nothing's been changed in long-term memory, nothing has been learned. And therefore, you can't really evaluate education in less than six months. You, know, you can't tell whether it's a good lesson unless students are remembering what they've been taught months later. Mm. And that's why a lot of these things are really hard to apply. So I'm a big fan of Andreas Ericsson's work on expertise. I quote it extensively in my own work. But the difficulty is, his notion of deliberate practice, where teachers, for example, get feedback, is really difficult to do in education because we don't actually know what makes good teaching, and therefore we can't guarantee that the feedback we're giving to teachers is likely to make them better. Mm. So I think we often rush to 
uh, apply insights in rather shallow ways. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's better that teachers are inquiring in new ways and look, trying to keep up with you know, the latest thinking. I just think we have to be a bit more skeptical about how relevant these things are to our practice as teachers. And I saw you talk a, a couple of years ago at Research Head about this notion of teachers in their sort of defence against research. They say, oh, it wouldn't, wouldn't work in my classroom. And they point to all the variables around, you know, uh, education research. And, and you are quite clear that actually sometimes it won't work in that teacher's classroom. And how much of that is used as a sort of stick to beat research with fairly or unfairly? And is, you know, does that, that doesn't completely discredit research, I imagine, but it, it is a qualifier as, as such. Yes, I mean, I've often said, you know, what's interesting is not what works in education, but under what circumstances does it work? I mean, if you take a classic case like class size reduction, there are some people who say that class size reduction does work, and some people who say class size reduction doesn't work. But that's not very helpful. What we need is to understand when does it work. So, for example, when you reduce class size, you need more teachers. If you reduce class size from 30 down to 20, for a group of 60 kids, you used to need two teachers, and now you need three. So you've increased the number of teachers you need by 50%. So the crucial thing then is, are the teachers you're bringing in, the teachers you're giving new jobs to, as good as the ones you already had? And that depends on local employment markets. So in one place, class size reduction might work because you're able to bring in really good teachers. But in another place, it might not work because there aren't any available teachers who are any good, and therefore you're bringing in people who are lost less effective as teachers. Mm. So I, I think that researchers deserve some of the blame here because they haven't, I think, taken sufficient account of those contextual variables. And, but I think also teachers have been quick to reject this and say, well, anything that a researcher comes up with won't work in my classroom. It's, it's difficult, but I think there's a there's a more profound issue here, which is that working out what a piece of research means for a teacher's practice is more than a simple putting of research findings into effect. When teachers take on research, they are taking on the task of creating new knowledge, albeit of a distinct and local kind. Yeah. I think the big mistake we've made, both as teachers and researchers, is to underestimate the creativity and the complexity involved in applying research findings to something as complex as teaching. I think, I, I guess, you know, Carol Dweck's been the, the biggest uh, sort of uh, victim, if, if in, in, I guess she would see it that way, a victim of her research being uh, applied to the classroom environment. And she's been very transparent in saying, do you know what, I'll hold my hands up. I didn't see this, this problem and I didn't see this, this, this how it'd be misconstrued and I, I'm trying to work at making it better. Is that, is that an obligation on researchers to, to sort of be more transparent like that and to, to not deal in absolutes or universal truths? I think researchers have to make a choice. I mean, you can either be a pure scientist and just find things out, or you can engage with dissemination. And I think that's a, a choice that scientists should make. When, when Paul Black and I uh, reviewed the research on formative assessment, we did a very closely argued 70-page referee journal article we also produced a booklet called Inside the Black Box, where we went way beyond the evidence given. It, it, it was really a polemic. Mm. We were actually drawing out implications, and we did that on the basis of experience and in intuition as much as we did on the basis of evidence. So we made a deliberate choice to engage with policymakers and practitioners because we thought this was too important for them to ignore. 
I think Carol Dweck is a more interesting case. The thing that people miss about Carol Dweck's work is when she talks about growth and fixed mindset, she's talking about something very specific, which is the way that students view intelligence. Mm. So I think that while Carol Dweck's work has been misrepresented, the good news is it's not particularly harmful <laughs> because although the evidence is that it's very hard to change mindset as Carol Dweck defines it, mm. and her work has not been replicated, and the effects on student achievement of mindset interventions were not significant at the conventional levels that we would choose in psychology, the fact that schools are saying to students, yet, and students say, I can't do this, and the teacher says, yet, then that's very powerful. So I think that you know, we have a continuum of things. If you ask children, will you ever learn to drive a car? Most children who can't currently drive a car believe that that's something they can do. So there's some things you can learn to do that you can't do yet. Mm. And most children believe that that's the truth for a musical instrument. You can get better at playing a musical instrument by practicing it. The problem is many kids think that mathematics is of a different kind. So really what needs to be happening in schools, and I think a lot of the mindset work that I see schools doing is, is very helpful in this regard, is just moving more things into the box where kids think working hard at this will help me get better. Yeah. So although it, it, it does in fact misrepresent Carol Dweck's work, um, there's been a huge strand of psychology that has focused on the role of talent versus effort, and this is where Anders Ericsson's work's work comes in as well. There's been a huge strand of, of, of work on which is more important, talent or effort, and in the West, we've traditionally regarded talent as more important, and in Confucian cultures, they've often regarded effort as more important. Mm. I think what we're discovering is the Confucian cultures had it largely right, yeah. not completely right. I think that in Japan, many students are pressured to think that they're not working hard enough because they're not successful. So, you know, some people do find learning mathematics easier than others. But the really important point is no matter how good you are at mathematics in terms of your talent, your natural abilities of mathematics, you can always become much better than you are by working hard. Mm. And I think that's a very powerful message. I often, when I'm talking to students, I talk about basketball. You know, there's no doubt that taller people are better at basketball than shorter people. But you can't make yourself taller. What you can do is practice to become as good as you can be, given your existing height. Yeah. And so there are some very successful um, players who are regarded as officially not tall enough. Steph Curry now, um, a guy called Muggsy Bogues, who played years ago in the National Basketball Association, he was five foot three, and he played at the top level of basketball because he was, you know, worked really hard, amazing vertical leap. So I think that's the important point, is not to pretend that everybody's the same. The talent doesn't matter, because that's just nonsense. What we can do is to say, yes, talent exists. Some people find this stuff easier than others. But there is no limit to what you can achieve if you work hard at this. I think that's the important message to students. And many, many of the mindset interventions I see happening in schools uh, are along that um, line of, of argument. And I think that's very healthy. And I know that at the moment as well, you're very keen on the work of John Swallow. And if we're taking that, that Carol Dweck and then trying to put that into action, how do we improve uh, a student's ability or a student's attainment at least? Um, Swallow, and he's written a piece in the 8th of uh, September issue of TES, um, talks about ineffective pedagogy and effective pedagogy based on working memory. 
And I know that's a slightly controversial uh, field because it, he is, you know, going against the, the wisdom of, of many years about project work, about discovery learning. And how, where, where do you sit on the, on the John Sweller um, cognitive load theory? And, uh, well, I mean, John Sweller is only controversial if you don't want to take any account of the evidence about how human brains actually work. <laughs> so, uh, and, I, and I'll put my hands up to this. I used to teach mathematics through problem solving. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I liked problem solving as an approach. I used to teach mathematics, and I now realize that was probably not helpful for the students in my class who found learning more difficult. Mm. For the students who were good at problem solving, it was probably quite productive. This is what Sweller calls the expertise reversal effect. Mm. But I think that the cognitive science now is, is, is showing how this focus on skills rather than content has been unhelpful. The focus on authentic activities, the focus on project-based learning has been unhelpful. Not because project-based learning is a bad idea, but because project-based learning has too often focused on the projects rather than the learning. Mm. And so if we can get learning happening in projects, I'm all for it. But the difficulty is, you know, we see authentic tasks in science, we see students doing lab work in science. If they lack the content knowledge to make sense of what they're seeing, they're not learning anything. And I think that the most important contribution that John Sweller has made is to point out that one of the ways in which learning can fail to happen when you might think it would happen is because students become overloaded. The, the cognitive load is too great. And this is based on some incredibly solid, solid science. I mean, there's no serious psychologist who disputes the idea that one of the most powerful models for thinking about the way our brains work is to have a short-term memory and, and, and long-term memory. Mm. And short-term memory is limited in capacity and duration, and it can't really be increased very much. And therefore, the only way to make students smarter is to increase the contents of long-term memory. And I think, while it may be controversial, I have no doubt that Sweller is actually fundamentally correct. I think it's quite interesting in the piece he talks about uh, you know, the reason why some teachers may say, well, problem-solving works in my classroom. And he talks about, yes, if you do problem-solving, you will eventually get to the result you you want essentially, but it, you have very many false sort of false attempts at getting that 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 information. Whereas if you're just told it, you actually get it immediately. And he talks about that 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 cost time analysis of it basically, and says, yeah, it might work, but you where your class might get six weeks to to get the concept, another class will have it in a single lesson. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of putting it because he's not completely discrediting discrediting a way of working, but he's saying. We have, we have limited time, this is the most effective way of doing it. And, and it's not just we have limited time, it is also that some students learn naturally much faster than others. Mm. And so the students who are really suffering are the students who learn more slowly than others, and they don't have the time to mess about. That's the problem. Mm. That's why we have such a wide range of achievement in mathematics, I think, is because too many students are getting education that's not optimal for them. But because of this expertise reversal effect that the Sweller talks about, a lot of this stuff is highly effective for the high achievers mm. because that, their cognitive load is not being overloaded. The, the high achieving thing is interesting as well because we've got a piece by John from Y later in September talking about the need to push uh, high achievers uh, further and the, the sort of the social, sort of the, the concept people have of pushing high achievers is that you're sort of limiting their social 
social capacity or you're, you're pushing them too hard and he speaks about there's not actually a lot of evidence to suggest that's true and there's plenty of evidence suggesting that pushing these kids actually they have they go on to have very successful lives is that somewhere a role of research is to sort of address mythologies around uh, whether Jonathan White is correct or not um, but to address sort of common misconceptions and is that why sometimes research is sort of pushed against because these are things that people hold quite dear and maybe they've practiced these these things for 20, 30 years in a career? Well, I think that the difficulty is that it's very hard for research to speak about things where, the res- where things haven't been researched very effectively. Mm. So, for example, if you take ability grouping in mathematics, the consensus is that grouping students by ability actually lowers average student achievement because it tends to produce losses for the lowest achievers at the, at the expense of gains for the highest achievers. And the losses for the lowest achievers tend to be greater than the gains for the highest achievers, producing average achievement a little bit. But, first of all, it may be a, a value issue. We may think that a small loss for the lowest achievers is more than compensated for by a smaller gain for the highest achievers, who you think is the most important. That's a, that's a values issue that research can't tell you about. Uh, I happen to think that the low achievers are more important, but that's because I, I believe in, a, in all people being able to participate in democratic society. If you had a utilitarian function, it may be increasing the achievement of the high achievers may produce more economic value. Um, that, that's, that's something that research can never answer. But the more interesting issue is the experiments that we've got are the experiments that we happen to have been done. So almost all the educational research that's been done on grouping by ability has just produced, has just reproduced the school setting. In other words, we happen to have, by chance in most schools, the top sets being taught by the best teachers. Now it turns out, we know from the work of um, Simon Burgess at Bristol, that actually the best teachers are more effective for the lowest achievers. So when you group kids by ability and give the best teachers to the top sets, you are, in effect, denying the kids who would benefit most from having a good teacher, most of the good teachers. Yeah. And you could actually find a completely different set of research results if you actually grouped kids by ability and gave the best teachers to the lowest achieving students. Now, I don't know that would be the case, but it's an interesting idea. And you can't conclude that grouping by ability doesn't work if all the research that has been done doesn't take into account the key variables. So that's why it's very dangerous to conclude that you know, the research shows this, because we might not have done the right research yet. Is that where this, this, the education and research relationship is going to have to develop to? I mean, we've come a long way in the last five years, but in the next five years, do you think that a more, a more mature relationship will take into account, though, more widely? I know people, or there's certain people who already do what you, you know, make those um, statements that you just made, you know, make those, make those connections, but would, are we pushing towards a more mature conversation as a whole about research and education, where, they, where those variables are considered? I think we are making progress but the incentives in the system aren't right yet. So there's no doubt that doing research in really applied settings with messy real-world situations is much more difficult than it is doing in a laboratory. And therefore, it's not surprising that academics who are promoted on the basis of their publications often choose to do research that is easy to do well 
And when you do research in rural settings, you often end up with, with research findings that are kind of inconclusive. And so right now, universities, the way that they incentivize academics to choose the research that they do, are driving researchers away from the kind of research that needs to get done. Now, I want to be absolutely clear, some researchers nevertheless, you know, choose to do the, the best kind of research and as a result harm their careers. But I think it's unfortunate that the system that we have for rewarding particular kinds of research, particular kinds of publications, particular kinds of journal articles, that system doesn't seem to be creating the incentives for people to do the thing that's best for education. Mm. And I don't know what the solution is. You know, I've, I've been a university administrator. I don't know what the answer is. But I do know that right now, the incentives aren't there for academics in education departments to do the research that I think would be most helpful to teachers. Mm. I couldn't let you go without asking what you're working on at the moment. What, what's your what's your sort of you know next year look like? What what's your focus going to be on? Well, uh, currently, um, because I live in the U.S., um, I've become convinced that the, the the problem in the U.S. is different from the problem in the U.K. Um, England has what, 140 local authorities. America has 13,500 local authorities, each one with its own conditions of service and teacher pay scales and things like that, each one with a board of education, board of, board of schools or school board that is just focused on their own local circumstances. And so I, I'm just finishing a book for the general public, if you like, focusing on why what we're doing isn't going to help kids very much. So all the things that people are thinking of, you know, charter schools and vouchers in America, free schools and academies in Britain, why these things aren't going to produce the effects we need, even if they work. Um, and then trying to point out that we, there are two things that we need to focus on. One is helping teachers become better, and the other is returning to a more knowledge-based curriculum. Mm -hmm. So it's basically saying, you know, here's all the things we could do, and here's why most of them won't work, and, and here's the things we, we, we could do and, and, and do work and why you should get behind these ideas. And your uh, deadline for that? Well, um, it, I, I hope it's going to come out early next year. Okay. Um, I have no idea what sort of reception it'll get, but I think that I've, I've become convinced myself that in America we need to get school boards understanding these issues more deeply. So that, you know, I think school board members, like teachers, need to become critical consumers of research. Mm. And where I live in Florida, the state constitution limits class sizes to 22. Right. And that works fine in rich areas where you can get lots of teachers, but in poor areas like where I live, what that means is that you end up employing a lot of people who actually wouldn't be that great. And you, you know, if you actually made class sizes larger, you could pay teachers more and therefore attract better teachers. So you know, there's lots of policy decisions being taken that sound interesting, sound, you know, wonderful class size reduction, who could be against that? But it turns out to have mixed effects. And again, it's just saying to, to all people involved in policy making education, you know, you need to think about whether this, this research applies in your context. Mm. As I come back to this phrase, you know, I think all policymakers and leaders in education need to be critical consumers of educational research. And that way, I think, education can, research can make a contribution. We can't ignore it, but it can't become a straitjacket either. Thank you very much, Dylan, for your time. That's excellent. You're welcome.